Hello and welcome to the Talking Physio podcast. In this episode, Dr. Natalie Finney, lecturer in neurological physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne, and Dr. Elizabeth Lynch, research fellow at the University of Adelaide, chat about the vital role of physical activity in stroke rehabilitation. Before we dive in, this episode has been brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, supporting the promotion and translation of research, and sponsored by Flexies, the exclusive partner of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation. Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap, has been clinically proven to be effective for back pain relief lasting up to 15 hours. Let's get started. So, Liz, I guess it would be good if we started by talking about what the role of physical activity in neurological rehab is. Yeah, so I, my experience has mainly been in stroke. And as a physiotherapist, pretty much our whole role is in stroke rehab is about promoting physical activity. So most people that come in to inpatient stroke rehab, their goal is to get walking again. And I haven't worked in... Have you worked in community? I have worked a bit in community as well. But again, it's often around mobility and getting people more active. And certainly in inpatients, the most important thing we can do is get people up on their feet. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's heaps of research coming out now about how important it is to practice the task so that if people are having trouble getting out of bed, you need to practice getting out of bed. If they're having trouble standing up, practice standing up over and over again until you have the muscle strength to be able to do it easily, as well as relearning those motor patterns and your balance and everything else that goes into the complex activity that really seems quite simple when it's automatic. So practicing standing up, practicing walking, practicing balance and all those things I think come under the umbrella of physical activity. I think probably something as physiotherapists we need to be more mindful of is being really specific about addressing things like strength, addressing things like cardiorespiratory. So I don't work in the clinical setting anymore because I've moved into research, but when I reflect back on my own practice, I don't think I did that well at all in terms of being really specific about strength and cardiorespiratory fitness. I think there's a lot of evidence now about strength training for neurological conditions and about actually implementing the guidelines, you know, the ACSM guidelines and doing our strength training in a very specific and progressive way. And with cardiorespiratory fitness... The sad thing is, during physio sessions, we don't induce a training effect, so we have to be much, much better at working our patients harder and inducing a training effect. Aerobic fitness has been shown to improve all sorts of things, and for healthy people, it improves our thinking and our mood. It's just so important. We know the benefits of physical activity just so far-reaching. It's a preventative strategy for so many chronic health conditions, And it helps us maintain our weight, maintain our blood pressure, maintain good cholesterol and glucose levels, and most importantly, it improves our mood. Mm. Do you reckon when you work in the clinical setting, like how easy is it to address fitness? Because we wouldn't have had the equipment, I don't reckon, in the gym that I was working in. Uh, In the settings that I've worked in, we've had some good fitness equipment, like in normal gyms, like cross trainers, steppers, bikes and treadmills. It's very feasible to get stroke patients or any neuro patients on these pieces of equipment and I think we should use them more but not just throw them on the bike for 20 minutes and leave them there, actually do a training program with them, you know, work in intervals or do some hip work 
I think we need to be really mindful of actually including fitness training in our programs. Sorry, would you do like stress testing before you started fitness? So um, the jury's a bit out. So last conference, Sandy Billingo came out and she has a great exercise test on her website on the KU, the Kansas University website, that you can download and run with your patients. And so each centre is going to have a, a bit of, you know, will their doctors require medical clearance or not? So I can't remember which researcher. There's between Janice Ng and Marilyn McKay Lyons. One says that you need to do exercise testing before working your patients, and the other one says you don't. So the jury's so a I know with Janice Ng because I went and visited her in Canada. So she was saying that with the dose trial that they did, they did do stress testing first, but it was a barrier because people were scared to do it without the stress testing. But what she was advocating for was that physios get involved and learn how to do stress testing because once we do do that, that's going to be an enabler to, A, it's upskilling us in being really savvy and precise about fitness testing, but also upskilling us, which I think seems really good sense. And I think it's really important that this is included in entry-level physio education. It's not hard to do, it's just about monitoring heart rate and blood pressure while you're doing an exercise test with patients. And it's generally self-limiting, so it's quite safe. It's not working our patients to a level that they're going to have a heart attack. So it's something that should definitely be included. I think one of the really hard things for physiotherapists is that we have so much to work on with our patients. We have to get them up and walking to get them home when they're in an inpatient setting, but we also have people whose arms aren't working and we need to work on that. We need to work on their fitness. We need to work on their strength. We need to work on their task-specific training. So there is a lot, and it's about prioritising and making the best use of our time. And I think there's a role there for teaching people to be empowered, so teaching the patients that we work with giving them the skills so that they know what would be beneficial, what will aid their recovery, what will aid secondary prevention if it is a stroke, but also dealing with their diabetes or their obesity or whatever else they've got going on with their comorbidities. But if we can see ourselves as guides or as teachers or as coaches rather than people that need to be there for every single session, if our patients are safe to be able to do stuff either semi-supervised or on their own or with family assisting. But I think there's a lot of scope for us to be really clever about the way we're using our time when, as you say, our time is really limited. And the people that we work with have got such diverse, broad needs that, you know, you can't just address one thing and really meet all their needs, I don't think. Even in the best rehab centres, people get two hours of physio a day and that's the most they're going to get time with you. So absolutely we need to be empowering them to do some work on their own or use the family members that are there to help them. Can the nurses set them up on the ward to give them something else to do? Because what happens for the other 22 hours a day is one of my favourite sayings (laughs) because you might do something beautifully in your therapy session but if the patient can't replicate that, you know, it's only going to happen within those sessions with you and we need to get our patients empowered to move and function on their own. So I'm just, this is just kind of thinking this through for this podcast really like on the hierarchy of what we should be doing as physios what do you reckon it seems to me like we should address function first and foremost but then be mindful almost with function you need to address strength as well you know because strength will help you function cardiorespiratory fitness is almost like icing on top or do you reckon that's fundamental and should be addressed every single time too 
It's a really hard one and it's very patient dependent, I guess. Because some, for example, a lot of stroke survivors don't even have the fitness to be able to complete their ADLs. So fitness really? is, yeah, so fitness is actually really important. Or they're at the level that if they lose some fitness, they're going to lose their independence. That's how bad stroke survivors' fitness can be. So we absolutely need to work on it. And it can be starting very slowly, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that surprises me, actually, that there's um, no one that can't the, the ADLs. I can't remember the stat, but there's a lot of stroke survivors that are at risk of losing their independence. Wow. You know, our patients are often quite unfit. And in hospital, we're always worried about hospital-acquired infections, but we also need to be concerned with hospital-acquired deconditioning, which we know happens to a lot of patients and there's in been hospital. He- there's been a lot, of, lot more awareness on that now, I think. So the whole NPJ paralysis. So you were saying that that is big in Victoria. I've only seen it on Twitter, actually, from the UK. So it's, it is becoming so much more, we're so much more aware of it. But I think physios are leading that. I think nurses are as well. And I think the more that we can be really sensible about everyone owning this, as well as thinking about when you're in hospital, it's such a weird environment compared to home. Everything smells funny, it looks funny, you lose the um, autonomy of your body almost. Like, am I allowed to get up and get myself a drink? Oh, you I know? Got that Red Fool's wristband on my wrist, I'm not allowed to get up. That's yeah. what our patients are thinking. And, and all this stuff, am I allowed? Am I allowed to do this about me? Which I think we need to get, you know, this moves into the power and autonomy side of things, but it's the hospitals are weird environments. And I think when we work in hospital settings, we forget how strange it is until you go in with a family member and you think, oh my God, this is weird. Um, and I think being mindful of that, and obviously patients need to be safe. We don't want people falling over and fracturing, but I think we're so focused on the fear of falls that we have moved too far. And I think now with some of these NPJ paralysis things, we're starting to move in the right direction, but needs to keep moving that direction more. Still, I think we still have a long way to go. And I think as physiotherapists, we really need to own physical activity. We have great skills in exercise prescription, but what we have that's really special is we have great movement analysis skills and a really good understanding of neurological conditions and how we can get our patients moving best. And that's why really we are experts for physical activity in neuro and we need to have the confidence about that too. Yeah, and I, and I think it's almost a professional responsibility that we make sure that we are doing in practice what we know will benefit our patients. So not just doing, like you said, not just doing what we're doing in the gym, but making sure that that carries over throughout the day in a safe way, in a responsible way, but giving people the power and the safety, setting them up safely so that they can continue to look after their physical activity when we're not around with whatever assistance it is that they need. That's right. And I think there's a lot of common misconceptions about physical activity and about our treatment. What do you think about that for patients, Liz? Yeah, so looking back, and you'll see this more in particular cultural groups where they feel that they're very sick and they need to be looked after. And different age groups will be more like that than others. So, you know, young people will tend to be very gung-ho and tend to get up and not wait till they're told that you're allowed to. And they might be labelled as impulsive or safety risk or whatever but other people on the flip side where they're very they want to stay in bed and they want to be looked after and they want to rest and they want to wait till the recovery will happen and that's when we will take that role as a providing with the right information and potentially coaching and and certainly involving if it is a cultural thing involving the family in that information exchange as well so that people understand the harms that can come from too much rest and the benefits that can come from being active. And then 
we need to get people on board so that they feel listened to but also that they're doing what they need to to look after their health. Absolutely and I think as physios I think one thing we're often worried about is fatigue in our neurological clients and we know that fatigue is a big problem for many of our patients and we need to respect that but um, I guess one thing I always uh, I'm an educator now and one thing I always tell my students is don't ask your patients if they're tired they will tell you so we're always such lovely people as physios you know how are you going are you tired don't ask your patients if they're tired they will tell you you will see it in their face you will see it as their movement deteriorates so yeah don't pop that idea in their head I guess yeah and I think the other thing with some of this neurological fatigue that people will have it's not something that will tend to go away with rest it often isn't something that gets worse with exercise and so I think that's what we need to be mindful of and, and for some people it does and then like you said respond to that but if someone is fatigued it's not necessarily going to go away if they're resting and it certainly will get worse if they're deconditioned so that everything is much harder sometimes fatigue is it's almost I think as physios we're quite used to the idea of chronic pain and you learn to manage that condition without necessarily stopping what you would do because of that condition and fatigue is something that Long term, people learn to do pacing and maybe doing bursts of activity throughout the day. But and after a stroke, if you have reasonably new fatigue, we do have a role there to share what we know, which, you know, I think there's heaps more work to be done in this space. I think we don't understand fatigue very well at all yet. But what we do know at this point is that fatigue should not preclude physical activity. You should do physical activity regardless of fatigue within the limits of that person's symptoms and preferences. Absolutely. I think one of the other misconceptions that we have is that as physios we love to put our hands on patients because, you know, we feel like we're helping, we're making a difference and we often are and there's certainly a place for hands-on, particularly in the early days to help our patients experience movement and to demonstrate or facilitate how the movement should be but I think sometimes we do overhandle and we don't take our hands off quickly enough to empower our patient because as we were talking about before we're not with them 24 hours a day so knowing when to take your hands off is an important skill yeah and I think if someone for instance if someone can't get out of a chair without assistance you absolutely need to put the hands on but if someone can get out of the chair and it looks wonky that's when you can use other techniques other than your hands to help them stand up and you know so sometimes you might guide them with your hands and then say try and do that same movement without my hands on I've heard of patients who've gone home who've been worried about doing activities because it might not be perfect because they might be using the wrong patterns on the flip side you've got patients who are going home using patterns that might be uneven but they're independent and I think if it was me give me independence over perfection every any day and that's not to say we don't work on quality of movement we absolutely should We absolutely should work on quality of movement and balance, but be creative about the ways we do that and don't get stuck in one particular groove of how to do that. Use hands-on, use hands-off, use coaching, use all sorts of cues and see what works for that person, but make sure that you've given them the empowerment and the skills to be able to do that when you're not there. So I think it's about having a lot of different tools in our toolbox and also remembering that we need to have some evidence-based tools in our toolbox too. And we know that there's things that have been shown to work and we absolutely should be trying those techniques out. But we need to have other tools as well for when that might not work for your patient. Yeah. 
So Nat, last night when we were talking about this podcast, you were telling me about your research, which I actually didn't know much about. Can you go into that now? Well, uh, it's I've done a longitudinal study and followed stroke survivors up for two years and we were measuring a whole lot of things, but the main thing was physical activity over that time. And we looked at associations between different physical activity variables and different cardiovascular risk factors. And one of the things, a couple of the things that stood out was that actually participating in moderate to vigorous physical activity or MVPA was important and was associated with better outcomes in cardiovascular risk factors. And this was more so than doing light physical activities or simply than the number of steps taken. So we found that MVPA is actually important. So it's a little bit disappointing. It, it means... So, you know, for the consumer, that's where you say you're huffing huff and puffing. Puff. So and you're sweating. Uh, yeah, yeah, at least huffing and puffing. So um, how, yeah. would, how would stroke survivors normally get exercising that that high yeah so for for a lot of our stroke survivors just walking will um, get them working at that level of three mets which is mvpa so that's working their body quite hard so unfortunately it showed that we need to get them working to quite a, a hard level for them rather than just accumulating a little bit more and often throughout the day so is that like the if you do the perceived rate of exertion is that what's that four or five uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here I am showing my ignorance why we need this podcast. <laughs> so it's it's um, so that you you can usually talk while you're doing it, yeah. but you probably can't sing, right? Yeah, but it is different, and the studies of actually what met levels are for stroke survivors of mild, moderate, and severe severities have not been done. But uh, the other big association was that about doing a 10-minute bout of moderate to vigorous physical activity was associated with better cardiovascular outcomes too. So we need to achieve that level of moderate to vigorous physical activity, but then we need to get our patients to sustain it for a period of time as well, and that can be beneficial for their secondary prevention and their health. And so was your study just observing a cohort, or did you assign people to do particular No, no, it was just observing a cohort. So how many people were actually... So doing MVPA? Had, so most patients could do MVPA and achieved more than 30 minutes of MVPA. That surprises me. Yeah, but when we looked at it in those who were achieving bouts, uh, MVPA in bouts, the numbers were and percentages were much, much lower. So we had around, I think it was 73% in the 70s for most time points that we were achieving MVPA, but the percentages were much, much lower, so like around a quarter of the cohort we're achieving it in bounds. Because we hear about how inactive stroke survivors are in the community. Yeah. And you're so, saying 73% of people are exercising the MVPA. Well, so that's because they just walk a little bit. So they walk for a couple of minutes here and a couple of minutes there throughout the day and they were getting to their MVPA. Um, wow. But a lot less of the cohort were sustaining it. So these aren't going to the gym and exercising? No, just... not, it, this is just doing... So a lot of our stroke survivors get to that level just by doing their ADLs. Wow, so then they should be doing that more More. so they can do their ADLs without being puffed. Yeah. Yeah. Comes back to that first point, got it. Yeah. And so I guess if we're looking at physical activity, there's all different sorts of ways that we can frame that. So I know that Coralie English and her team in Newcastle, they're doing a lot of work on looking at really focusing on sedentary time and breaking up sedentary time and how we can do that. And so she's got some lab studies where they've got really quite tightly protocolised people coming into the lab and they're looking at um, 
blood pressure. So that it found a really a positive effect. So breaking up sitting just by doing some standing exercises every 30 minutes, I think it was, that was shown to have a beneficial effect on blood pressure in stroke survivors. And blood pressure is the most important risk factor. So if we can find a treatment that reduces blood pressure, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things like we talk about the physical activity being the golden bullet. It is the holy grail. It's the thing that addresses so many, so many health conditions. But then how do we ask people to be more physically active when it's more difficult? We know in healthy, normal people, this morning I didn't go for a run. Actually, I did. I did go out with my son, but it was shorter than what it would need to be because we're doing the couch to 5k. You know, so I quite often don't do the exercise I should be doing. And I have no excuses other than my life is busy and poor me sort of thing. Whereas if it's harder to get dressed and it's harder to exercise and it's cold and it's raining or whatever, we need to, in changing behaviour for anyone is really difficult and changing behaviour for people who have more difficulty getting up and ready in the morning is harder again. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done to look at how to encourage, how to facilitate activity for everybody, regardless of whether or not they've got a neurological disability, neurological condition. I did a a fantastic workshop, I think it was last conference actually, with Taryn Jones and Kath Dean about behaviour change. And the penny dropped a little bit for me then. I think as physios, naturally we love to exercise. That's part of the reason we probably did the course. And it's something we do. And even for us who love exercising, it's hard for us to get in our five sessions of 30 minutes every week. But something that Taryn and Kath pointed out in their workshop was that for some people, exercise is actually aversive. People hate it. And for those patients that are not familiar with exercise and haven't done it before, it's a really, really hard sell for us to get them to take this up. Yeah. And certainly some work that Emily Ramage in from Uni Newcastle is doing is doing this co-production work for an exercise intervention for people with stroke to reduce their secondary stroke risk. One of the things that the consumers fed back is that I hate exercise, hate it. I like to move. And so this is now about getting up and moving. So that's it's being framed differently so that we're not putting people off. And I think that's really interesting. That's just something that we hadn't considered and the benefits of involving the consumers in your research became through loud and clear with that sort of thing. If we can market it better so it's more enticing, wonderful. If it means it's going to help people opt into our research program, that's great for us as researchers, but if it can inform us how to deliver interventions more effectively, that's going to be really helpful for us in our profession, I think. Definitely, and um, I think it also highlights that we need to have proper conversations with each patient individually and find out what it is they like to do, target our program to them individually, and we're working together to do this. Yeah. So we've got all this um, great evidence and emerging evidence about the benefits of physical activity for our patients, but I guess some of the barriers are the health system and how can we, what changes would we like to see being made? Because certainly in the community, it's often really hard to access you know, you hear about stroke survivors will tell us once they've left the hospital system, they go into this black hole and there's nothing there. Once once they've finished their rehab, they go out and there's nothing. And people are living with strokes for a really long time. And they, you know, they're getting older 
and they've still got the stroke. I think that's a real concern for, in terms of longevity and quality of life. And there are some Medicare outpatient sessions that uh, stroke survivors can access, but the problem is they're very limited. And to make a change, you know, our neuropatients are very complex, so it can't all be done in a few sessions. It'll take a few sessions for a therapist to get their head around a patient and then to really delve into how can we make a difference and make a change. I guess that's a problem. And also, you know, the funding for those sessions is often very limited and there's often a gap fee for for patients to have to pay. So that's um, quite a limitation and it would be great if that uh, Medicare, if that was expanded, I guess. And the other kind of potential in this area, I think, is some of that work that Marie-Louise Bird has been doing. So she was in Canada with Janice Ng and did a project, I think, where physiotherapists trained up community workers in gyms. So people, they at least had some sort of personal training towards EP kind of qualification because it's a bit different in Canada than what it is here. But it was people so that people with strokes could exercise in gyms, right? Yep. And so that was really promoting better community services available for people with strokes so that they could then continue their beneficial exercise because that, that was framed as exercise, I think. Yeah, but it, was it was the FAME program. Yeah. So and about making services available to people with stroke to continue their rehab in the community setting out. So it was more like community-based versus health system-based. Yeah, so get out of the hospital, out of the health system and into just community gyms. And watch this space because hopefully Marie-Louise will be implementing the FAME program around Australia. So that would be... That would be very cool. Very exciting. And I guess uh, we know that another area is we know that stroke survivors and most people with neurological conditions are at risk of deterioration and at further cardiovascular risk, so risk of more health problems. So another really great thing would be funding for multidisciplinary reviews, you know, at least annually to identify any areas that they're not meeting recommendations, you know, whether that's their blood pressure, their physical activity their diet, so a multidisciplinary approach and then the appropriate interventions can be commenced and we can address these problems before another event happens. And I think that's really important too in terms of looking after the carers of people with stroke because they are so neglected and they cover such a load that making sure that we're looking after the stroke survivor is in turn helping to prevent care of burnout and overload they're doing so much work so that we need to be mindful and respectful and responsible to make sure that the stroke survivors aren't deteriorating when we could like you say nip it in the bud by doing things like multidisciplinary review clinics and, and referral to appropriate services so i guess um to sum up Physical activity is the golden bullet. It's something we should uh, definitely be getting our patients more active, addressing fitness a little bit more while people are inpatients. We should certainly not be discharging people from hospital without some sort of ongoing physical activity program. It needs to be addressed before they go home. It's really, really important. And I just want to highlight that physios are experts in this space and we should own it. And uh, I'm going to throw over to Liz to talk about our Fantastic Actions collaboration. So we've got a collaboration which is of physiotherapists but other health professionals as well who are working to do research to improve the outcomes for people with stroke using physical activity. And so that's a group of Australian and New Zealanders at this stage. We're predominantly physios. There's there's one physiologist in there. 
And so we're, we're trying to get people who are working in this field or researching this field to build a collaboration, to build what we know and what we're doing in terms of this. And then there's also this falls on, I don't know if it falls under the umbrella of or is aligned with. The it's very much aligned with the Physios for Physical Activity group, which is a group of physios of all different disciplines. And the one thing we all, all physios have in common is physical activity. So no matter what patient population you're working with, it comes back to physical activity. And so Christina Ekrigan and Bree Counselor started up this collaboration of physios who are interested in physical activity and it's a great thing to be part of and they have a fantastic website with lots of resources. That was Dr Natalie Finney, lecturer in neurological physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne and Dr Elizabeth Lynch, research fellow at the University of Adelaide And you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio, brought to you by the Physiotherapy Research Foundation and Flexies. Thanks for listening and make sure you catch the next episode of the Talking Physio podcast. Music